You may be seated. So this is uh, Vision Sunday. It's the baptism of our Lord Sunday. It's a lot of things. Um, but let me just start out by saying that um, there's been some, some uh, questions of me uh, as of late. And um, some people have asked, do you love us? <laughs> and I thought, what an odd question. Of course I love you. And so if there are any misconceptions out there in this church, please know that I love you guys. I love you more and more each day. There was a grieving process when we left 17 and a half years of ministry at St. Paul's in Conway, but my heart is drawn to you. And I feel like we're a church on a mission, a mission from God. And when I set forth what I perceive as our mission from God in my first sermon here, I want to remind you of it. Because I'm excited by what God, I believe, is doing through St. Paul's in Somerville. And those three things were these. That we would be biblically minded, Christ-centered, and let me uh, just take my time, (laughs) and Holy Spirit-driven. Okay, those are the three things. Let's just run over those one more time, why they're important for any church, particularly our church. First of all, to be a biblically-minded church runs off of the commandment that, that, or the exposition that Paul gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says that all scriptures are God-breathed, okay? So they're breathed out, theo, by God, theo, noustos, by the, Holy, by the Spirit of God. So they're breathed out of the mind of God, into the hearts of man, through the Spirit of God, so that... 2 Timothy 3 says, we will have a document for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. It shapes us and molds us as a church community. It equips us for every good work that God has for us to do in this place. So we are called to be biblically minded, people of the word. Not to go to the left or the right too far, but to stay focused on the wisdom of God. Second thing, Christ-centered. You know, Peter this morning talked about Christ being the cornerstone of the church. Now, if you're a builder, you know that to build a building on a faulty cornerstone is a huge mistake, right? Of course it is. For the building to be strong, the cornerstone must be perfect as Jesus is perfect. The cornerstone must be strong as Jesus, the creator of the universe, is strong. The cornerstone must be able to bear the entire weight of the structure, the church, as Jesus bears the weight of the church of God. In John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from the cornerstone, Rip the cornerstone out of a good, good building, and the whole thing collapses. Without me, you can do nothing. Holy Spirit-driven. Holy Spirit-driven. The church that Jesus founded was the church that was founded on the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is that which birthed the church on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is what John promised when Jesus was baptized, that he who comes after me will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. That is the important driving mechanism of the Christian church. Corporately, we can do nothing without the Spirit. Individually and personally, we can do nothing without the Spirit. 
Paul in Acts 19. It's kind of funny. He runs across some Christians. They're labeled as disciples. And he says to them in Ephesus, he says, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they go back at Paul and say, sir, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul says, well, let's remedy that very quickly. So they prayed for the Holy Spirit to descend upon them. Because Paul knew without the Holy Spirit, they can do nothing. Remember, the early church, those who had followed Jesus as disciples for three years, they loved him, they cared for him, they watched him die. And what did they do? They went back to their homes, back to their families, back to their villages, and they gave up hope. There was no hope, there's no boldness about them. Until they started to see these glimpses of Jesus in resurrected glory. And he gave them a cryptic mission. Remember, y'all go to Jerusalem. I know Jesus talked like that. Y'all, he was a good southerner. <laughs> He's from the southern kingdom. Y'all go to Jerusalem and wait for power to descend from on high. And remember they did. And in the upper precincts, in the upper room, about 120 of them were gathered one day. And the Holy Spirit came to blow a rich, empowering spirit through the life of that congregation to bring the fire of the living God down upon that place. And what happened? They went from dazed and confused and scared in the world to bold and courageous and mission-minded. That's us, my friends. We've got to be driven by the Holy Spirit of God. So biblically-minded, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-driven, but to accomplish this vision, we've got to do it through people, right? The buildings are not the church, the people, you in these cushioned uh, seats, are the church. You're the body of Christ. St. Teresa of Avila gives us a dose of reality when she says this about who we are. She says, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. You are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. So for the mission of the church to be played out, you've got to be the ones who bear it to the world. It's one thing to have a mission statement, you know, Christ-centered, biblically-minded, Holy Spirit-driven, and tack it on a wall somewhere. But until you reflect that mission to the world, it means nothing. You've got to embody it so that unbelievers see it and they want some of our God. That's what it's all about. Last Friday, I walked through the graveyard. I wasn't excited about having a graveyard when I accepted the call here. I thought that was kind of silly uh, to waste good property with dead people. Uh, <laughs> but, but I have grown to love it, let me just tell you. Uh, I love walking through it and see, seeing all the history of the saints. And, and with every epitaph, with every stone that stands above a grave site, I, I think about the story behind that person. The other day I saw a five-year-old little child that was buried in the graveyard, and I started to wonder, what's the story behind this child? What happened to this child when, it, when he or she died? What was, what was the family like that she was a part of? If you want to know more about the stories of some of the people in our graveyard, you can pick up Tombstones and Tablets of St. Paul's Church by Ann Fripp Hampton. It's a great book. I think Father John gave me a copy. But I began to think, I saw uh, epitaphs to people like um, Philip Gadsden. And it says he was a clergyman, but 
But what does that mean? What did he do? What was his impact on St. Paul's for the glory of God? And so we erect these stone monuments beneath, buried, uh, on top of buried people so that we'll remember their story and that we'll remember how they impacted the world for God, right? So building stone monuments is nothing new. Did you know it dates back to pagan cultures, even to the Old Testament, after the pagan cultures? They were called standing stones. In Hebrew, we call them masibah, or the set-up stones, set up. And they were set up for three reasons. Those, they, there's a set of standing stones in the Middle East that you see today. Um, but they were set up for three reasons. To honor God's miraculous work in the world to represent the covenant that God has made with his people, and to bear witness to the power of the living God to the world. So three things. Memorial to what God's done, a reminder to God's people of their covenant, and a tool for evangelism of the unbelieving world. You may remember Jacob setting up pillars as God renewed his covenant with the people of Israel that their descendants would go forth from the earth and inhabit all the corners of the earth. And God gave, and Jacob gave glory to God and built a standing stone and promised to give 10% of all that he has from God back to him for his glory. That would be Genesis 28. You remember Moses in Exodus 24 as he receives the commandments from God at the foot of Mount Sinai, he erects stones to remember God's miraculous acts that day. Remember Joshua in Joshua 24. As God renewed his covenant with the house of Israel, he put 12 stones in the ground to represent the 12 tribes of Israel as a glorious monument to the salvation of our God. And remember when the Israelites entered into the promised land through the river Jordan, that God parted the waters of the river allowed them to go forth on dry land, and they put up 12 standing stones for each of the tribes, glorifying God and reflecting his glory to the world. In Joshua 4, it gives us the reason for this. It says, the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord God had done at the Red Sea, which he dried up for us to pass over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Two things, two witnesses. One, we erect memorials to teach and imprint the faith on our children and our grandchildren and those under us for the next generation. But verse 24 says that the second reason is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. So we erect monuments so that we may speak of God's glorious nature to the nations, to unbelievers. Now here's why Israel and St. Paul's are so similar in where we've, we are today. If you have seen a map of the Holy Land or if you've ever been there, you know that Jerusalem is right smack dab in the midst of two of the most important trade routes of the ancient world. To the west, 
was a trade route on the coastal plain called the Via Maris. To the east in the present-day land of Jordan is the King's Highway. They both originate in Egypt, and they both travel to a place called Mesopotamia. Now, why is that important? Because they were the trade routes from Egypt to the other superpowers of the world, like Persia and Babylon and Assyria. So you got pagans traveling the roads south to north and north to south. I believe that God put Israel strategically in the middle of these trade routes so that his people could bear witness to his glory and the unredeemed could be saved. There were crossback, switchback roads through Jerusalem and Hebron and Shechem and Jericho so that unbelieving pagans on those roads could see God's people and in seeing God's people, they might see a bit of God. They were strategically placed. Uh, Isaiah 49 says that they were placed uh, in this region right there for this reason. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that they may see the salvation that I give to the ends of the earth. So here's how it worked. If you were traveling pagan going south or north, you might see some stones erected to the glory of the Most High God. And you might say, wow, look at these. These are awesome. I wonder why these are here. And if you're a Jewish person, a believer, you might say, well, let me tell you about these stones. Let me tell you about the God that we erected these stones for because he is the glorious God. He is the God of our salvation, his mighty hands at work in the world, and he wants to know you as his own, as his child. It gave them an opportunity to witness Now, why is this similar to our situation in Somerville? Well, think about it for a second. We are right between the interstates, highways, the Via Maris and the King's Highway, with a seaport down in Charleston. God has placed us strategically in a place of commerce and industry. We have amazing growth in the fields of aerospace technology, automotive manufacturing, bioscience, marine industry, places and institutions of higher education all around us. My friends, we are situated in God's most thriving area in the state. People are moving here from all over the country. When my cousin Eric was here to preach for my institution, he stayed around a couple days and he was thumbing through our directory and he looked at some of the names. He said, what is this? Now, we're both from Hartsville, South Carolina. And he said, well, who are these people? These people with last names like Melfi and Medeiros and Poplowski and Vorlick and Himmelgarn. And what is this name? I can't even pronounce it. Shapercotter, I said. <laughs> he said, they're not from around here, are they? I said, no, and glory be to God. He said, where are all the Joneses and all the Smiths? I said, they're here too. They're here too. A glorious melting pot of peoples with a great potential to reach all kinds of folks who are coming here. People are coming from all over. And whether they know it or not, they're seeking Jesus. And it's our responsibility to tell them about Jesus, to become standing stones. But more than that, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. In the Old Testament, standing stones drew unbelievers to the Most High God. Here's the difference in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. 
This message is to believers. This is to everybody in the church who believes. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3 says, If you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter's saying, if you've experienced the Lord God, if you've uh, known the cross and been forgiven of your sins, if you've known his grace and mercy and have accepted him as Lord and Savior, this message is for you. It's for you. And what does he say in verse 4? If you're a believer, you come to Jesus Christ as not an old dead stone, but as a living stone. There's a difference there, right? As you come to him, it says, you become a living stone. Does that sound familiar? The church is made up of living stones for Jesus. We are flesh and blood representatives of his glory and what he's done in our lives. We are monuments to the most high God. Now look at verse 5. Here's what that means. It says, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're living stones, a spiritual house. So every believer in this church today, God intends to take you, to shape you, to mold you, to form you, and to use you along with the other stones in this church to build up his spiritual household and to advance his kingdom so that unbelievers may see his glory and taste and see that he's good. So this means that if you're strategically placed, if you're meant to be a living stone, then everywhere you go, you should be a beacon for Jesus. In the streets, in the town, in your schools, in your work, in your leisure time, the unbelieving world should see a person so transformed by God's mighty work that they want to be like you. They want some of the God that's behind you. They see your reflection of God's glory, and they want to be in relationship with God as well. And so they begin to ask you, what is the reason for your hope? Where does your joy come from? Where is your peace in your heart? And you as a living stone get to say, let me tell you about Jesus. How he took me from darkness and brought me into the light. How he forgave my sins and washed them away forever. How he never gave up on a sinner like me. And he's not going to give up on you till you're one of his children. You see, we're now the standing stones that represent God to our culture. And if the culture is going to believe in the Most High God, it isn't going to be through those stones in the graveyard. That's not going to draw people's hearts to God. It isn't going to be by the buildings that we've erected, as nice as they are. People's hearts aren't drawn to God by buildings. People's hearts are drawn to God by living stones for Christ. So, are you going to be a living stone? Verse 5, Peter says, you're a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. You know what priests do? They represent the values and the salvation of God to the world. You are God's priests. And when you do your job as priests well, when you do it right, then the world sees your good deeds and wants to know the God behind those deeds. You represent Jesus. So, he concludes like this, Peter does today. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, remember, you're not at home in this world, you're, not, uh, you're aliens here, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, to live your lives radically differently from the world around you. These wage war against your soul. Then look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
They need to see a reflection of God's goodness in your life so that when they speak of you against you as an evildoer, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. They want to be drawn by a life that's been transformed. Are you a living stone? Have you been transformed by God's grace? If you are, then there's no one in Somerville that should be able to outlove you, to outwork you, to outgive you, to outlive you. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, you've got the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. And when you reflect that spirit to the world, they want to taste and see where that spirit came from. So I leave you with that. We're living stones. We're strategically placed here by God to fulfill the mission of being biblically minded, Christ-centered, and Holy Spirit-driven. Remember the song we sang, um, Come Thou Font, Fount of Every Blessing? There's a line in that from 1 Samuel. When the Israelites overcame the Philistines, and it says, As I raise my Ebenezer, a standing stone to the marvelous works that God had done for them that day. Will you become a living stone to the marvelous works that God is doing in this place? I pray that you will. The glory of God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.